I love when we have those light bulb moments and, and those light bulb moments often don't come directly from me. That's not my role. My, my role is to create the conditions for those things to emerge, because I believe that we have many great ideas that exist in our faculty and staff and our students who are helping to co-create this student experience together. everyone, and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Now, today's guest is someone that I have wanted to have a conversation with for a very long time. Christina Royale is currently the president of Holyoke Community College. She became HCC's fourth president in 2017 and significantly is the first female queer person of color to hold the position. And that's something I'm going to be asking her about in just a couple of minutes. Under her leadership, the college has embarked on bold plans, new initiatives, and innovative policies to continue the legacy of affordable quality education. She came to the role having served as provost and chief academic officer at Inverhills Community College in Minnesota, my home state, I'm proud to say. Christina has a wonderfully rich and deep background in e-learning and innovation, earned the PhD in education with an emphasis in instructional design for online learning from Capella University. And as always, we will include a link to her full bio in the show notes. For now, Christina, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Thank you, Melissa. So great to be here with you. We like to start our conversation by learning something about our guests. And from what I have read, it's obvious that your family, your upbringing played a critical role in shaping who you are today. So can you tell us a little bit about the journey that you have taken? What do you consider to be the most important influences that have shaped who you are today? Well, it's a great question because I do feel that so much of who we are and who we, how we show up as adults really do stem from some of our early upbringings. And for me, I, I was born in upstate New York and we were, um, I was uh, part of a, a family that was um, living in poverty. And when I was about eight years old, we were evicted from our apartment and subsequently my parents separated and I had to go and transition to a whole new school system. And in that transition, what was interesting is I initially tested below average in that new school system. And that was my first real aha moment about our educational structure in America, because I was an average student in um, the district I came from, and then I transitioned to another one, and suddenly I was below average, and there was nothing about me that was different, so it really spoke to me about the quality of our educational systems, and where they're located, and who has access to what resources, and that was a, a real uh, learning moment for me. What was also great about that is it was the first time that I had been exposed to parents that had college degrees. They were college educated, they had different jobs. It was a more affluent neighborhood. 
And for me, that I started to draw some connections to looking at education as my ticket out of poverty. And mm -hmm. from there, I made a decision that I was going to go to college. I was a first-generation college student. And so just like so many first-gen students, you, you have to figure it out without necessarily having people to share their prior experiences with you. And that was really informative in, in terms of shaping my uh, belief in the power of education and what I felt like could be my contribution eventually to this field. What a powerful, powerful journey. Do you remember at what age you really became first aware that your story was different, perhaps? Um, and I ask that because I'm also first gen, and I can I have a I have a keen memory of my parents taking me to college, uh, and they're not having any understanding about things, whereas so many of the other parents really knew what was going on. And I, that for me was like, might've been a little older, but it was the first time I thought, wow, my, my, my experience is really different here. Yes, I could relate to that, Melissa. When, when we showed up at my dorm room, mm -hmm. um, first of all, it was such a big deal. My father came with me, my sister and my brother all came to be able to move me into the dorm. And I had already, when I arrived there, my roommate was already there and sort of settled. And uh, there was just a, a lot of differences in our background, much more affluent individual. And, you know, we were just so happy to get me there and uh, for them to, to drop me off. And my father gave me $20 and said, you know, sort of good luck. <laughs> and um, and then my roommate was telling me that, you know, we have to get our books for, for class. So I go down to the bookstore and I give them my class schedule and they said that the books were going to cost $500 and I had $20 in my pocket and mm -hmm. I was like, so I, I have to pay for this. And like, this isn't part of, you know, the cost of um, me getting here. And so that was a, that was a real big aha moment. Um, and these are, these speak to so many of the instances that I think first gen college students really arrive unprepared and that you just have to learn to pivot on the spot and, and, and figure it out. And so, you know, I was talking to my parents and just said, you know, I, I need this to, to do that. And then you're in a situation where you're having to make dif different decisions about do you do you find a way to get the five hundred dollars needed for those books or do you then go without textbooks um, and or you just borrow and then that creates a whole different experience as you know academically when you have all of these added stressors to focus on that your peers don't have exactly yeah um, but that keen memory has given you such a sensitivity uh, for the students that that are served through the institutions where you have led, and that um, I I can only imagine how helpful how helpful that that has been. You know, I'm surprised at Baypath, uh, where we we serve so many first gen students. I'm surprised. I guess I shouldn't be, but how many times I hear from students um, that they just don't buy the books and then the consequences oftentimes are not 
not so positive for them. So absolutely. Um, and I can also understand the, the challenge academically for a right. faculty member in a classroom who has prepared their syllabus to be, you know, intentional and uh, to perhaps build upon lesson after lesson, but it's with the resources designed to help scaffold the student to the next level. And without that resource, then, you know, it's just, it's, it's another, it's another stressor that a student has to think about in order to be successful in the classroom. Yeah, exactly. So now you became HCC's fourth president, as I said, in 2017. Uh, for listeners not familiar with HCC, can you share something about your demographics? Who do you serve? What is your mission? Sure. Holyoke Community College, when I think about it, people ask me what we do. I say that we help to improve the social and economic mobility of our students. That's that's what we're really about. And that's what I think community colleges are, are really about. Um, as we um, began in uh, 2021, we celebrated our 75th anniversary as the oldest two-year college in the state of Massachusetts. We serve about 7,000 students. Our highest enrolled programs include liberal arts and sciences, foundations of health, business, criminal justice, and psychology. We're located in Holyoke, Massachusetts, and we serve the Pioneer Valley, uh, which is Western Mass region of the state. And our mission is to educate, inspire, and connect students. Educate reflects the core of our purpose, which is to change lives through the power of education. The second word in our mission statement is inspire. And inspire demonstrates how we do this. And we really believe that our students need relentless encouragement to succeed. And connect is what we do. We connect students to the college. We connect students to employers for internships and employment. We connect students to other students for peer support and we connect the college to the community. We have about 65% of our students are female and the overwhelming majority also attend part-time. Half of our students are BIPOC, Black Indigenous students of color, and we are a Hispanic serving institution with about 28% of our students who are Latinx. We're also a leader among colleges in our state for supporting students with disabilities. You are a wonderful spokesperson for that mission. I can see the passion in your eyes. I hope our listeners, when they watch the video of this, I hope that they can see that as well. So I, I fully understand uh, why, you were, why you were selected for the role. So talk to me a little bit about what it means to carry so many first designations in your role at Holyoke. Community College. And I know from what you've said, or what I've read, that racial identity certainly played a role in your growing up and in your awareness of students' experiences. But what, what do all those first designations mean? I think it's important to sort of characterize the time that I grew up in. Interracial marriage was legalized in 1967. And that was only five years before I was born. So when we think about our conversations around racial identity or even the topic of racism today, it's very different from what that looked like in the early 70s when I grew up. To have a white mother and a black father that had only 
literally been able to get married legally a couple of years before I was born, I think speaks to where the nation was at at that time frame. And I think that in some circles today, people would find that um, hard to believe, like that you know, people because of their race and ethnicity wouldn't be able to marry one another. But um, that had a profound impact on me growing up as a biracial individual. And in that context, I think I am lighter skinned. Um, and as a result, there was a little bit of an identity struggle for me of figuring out what does it mean to be half black when um, people would often look at me and they would actually make a lot of assumptions about what my race or ethnicity was. Um, I've been called Latina. I've been referred to as Native American. I've been referred to as Asian. And I think that happens a lot to mixed race people is that people are looking for some sense of trying to understand in terms of your facial features, you know, who you are. And often when you have a mixed race background, it can be a little bit harder to necessarily identify on the surface. But that for me was a different struggle than someone growing up 100% of whatever they might be. And I also had these experiences of spending time with my white family and having certain cultural experiences and social experiences, and then spending time with my black family and having completely different experiences, different foods, different churches, um, different conversation. And so while there is certainly a lot in common that I can identify as a child, when you're trying to figure out identity formation, you're also looking at differences to try to figure out where you fit in. What I came to understand through my own journey is that I had a particular privilege and it was an opportunity to utilize it in a different way. And so for me, I found it very powerful to be able to penetrate circles where someone who is 100% Black might not necessarily be able um, to be accepted, and then to be able to have conversations and then reveal that I was biracial. And then it creates sort of a cognitive dissonance for people about, wait a second, we have certain beliefs about this particular race and but we have a particular feelings about you. And, and so I found that my journey was to be able to affect, affect change from the inside. Now, someone um, who has a different set of characteristics, a different personality, different situation of uh, mixed background um, might choose to um, come up with a different way to, um, to navigate through the world. But this is where I think it really comes down to us identifying what is our purpose in the world in all respects, including racial identity. Oh, that's so wise. And I can only, I can only imagine uh, how students would be uh, comforted, perhaps in part by your experience, by your transparency about your journey, both in terms of racial identity and gender and, and gender identity, um, which is, I think, so critical for, for our young, young people today as they're trying to find their way uh, through uh, all of these different, these different issues.
Melissa, I'm glad that you bring up other aspects as well, whether it's gender, sexual orientation, mm -hmm. um, other upbringing, because the intersectionality of that when you are part of multiple underrepresented mm -hmm. groups can sometimes be challenging to understand where the source of your experience is and how that would differ if any one of those variables were different. And so I think I, for me, I have had a lot of students who are mixed race come up and, and just share that they were happy that, you know, I've been able to articulate what my journey has been as they are in school and trying to identify who they are as a person and um, figure out their place in the world. And I do think that, there is a particular experience, whether you're biracial or multiracial, where you feel in between worlds. Like I never mm -hmm. felt I'm not white enough to be 100% white and I'm not black enough to be 100% black. And so what does that mean for my place in the world? What, it, what does it also mean in terms of culture and identity when you're, when you're also having to um, explain yourself and maybe justify your existence in each of these races. And so that's different from, you know, a family all being unified because they are of the same race or ethnicity. And so there's a lot of other types of micro experiences that really emerge when you talk about people with mixed race backgrounds. Um, the HCC community is very lucky, fortunate to have you, I think, as a role model and as somebody who is comfortable enough in your own skin to be able to share your experience and, and your journey. Leader to leader, I think one thing that's important to also point out is that um, as leaders, I think it's really important that we're willing to share and be vulnerable enough to have these conversations about our pathways and journeys as opposed to just where we're at today. So sometimes people look at us and, and they see, you know, a, a, a more mature version of ourselves in whatever capacity we're at at this stage in life. And then, um, but they don't necessarily see unless we're willing to be vulnerable enough to share the journey, to share missteps, to share vulnerabilities about um, what it was like and, and how our perspectives have changed, both internal self-perspective, as well as our engagement with society. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more, Christina. So thank you for that. Um, let, let me switch gears. I am curious how you wound up in higher education more broadly, and then the presidency. How did you get on the pathway to a college presidency? Well, I certainly didn't start off with a ambition to become a college president. I initially had graduated from college with my undergraduate degree in mathematics, and I was in financial services to start. And when I was there, I noticed that there was a lot of uh, caring of these big oversized briefcases that agents and sales folks had that were creating charts for mortality and morbidity rates, that they were going out to homes and having an opportunity to talk to people about their insurance portfolios. And I had graduated in 1994 and I said, wait, where are the computers? Why aren't people using computers here? So I talked to the general manager 
And he says, well, that's a great idea. I'm going to create a training department and I'm going to hire you into it. And you work to help these people who have been selling insurance for many decades to understand the value of a computer. <laughs> so that's that was my first um, my my first true opportunity when I started getting into education and training, and I loved it. I loved talking to them about how the computer could benefit from them, what the strengths and weaknesses are, what it could do for their lives as um, as employees, and. So that was my first experience in education and training. And I love teaching the agents about how to actually um, talk about retirement planning and, and go through analysis. And so from there, I had an opportunity to go and work and teach full-time. I was actually teaching uh, software applications and um, in the corporate sector. And when I was in the classroom, someone saw me that was working on a national project and said, we'd really like for you to teach on this project we have where they were rolling out and upgrading the Social Security Administration of the US government from DOS to Windows. And mm -hmm. they, um, it was a nationwide project. And so I would literally, go to a site for a whole week, we would upgrade all their technology, and then we would train them on the software. And then I would either drive or fly home. And uh, I would check my mail, do my laundry, and I was back out at another site. And at that stage of life, it was so wonderful, because I also hadn't had a chance to really see a lot of other states, see the world mm -hmm. on a greater level. And so I was so amazed that a company would pay for me to travel to have an opportunity to see these other states and communities. And that's where I really fell in love with teaching. And then I had a couple of subsequent experiences um, in startup companies, in the corporate world. And then I had a crossroads and I had an opportunity. I was making a name for myself in, in that field of IT certifications. And I also had an opportunity to go back to my alma mater and work in workforce development. And I decided to take the unpredictable pathway and completely shift gears and go into higher education. And so through there, I started to learn workforce development through the lens of higher education. I started to, um, to expand our programs and build uh, our name in the community. And then the world started to shift and the institution was looking at building an online undergraduate program. And they said, well, you're a techie. Um, how could you build this for us? So I said, sure, I'd be happy to it. And so they said, well, we want you to work with our, um, our full-time faculty on converting their programs. And so I quickly got in the space of instructional design without realizing that. Mm -hmm. And so while I was there, I had an opportunity to get my master's. I started teaching for college and I loved it. Um, I got my master's in psychology and I was teaching psychology, but I was also teaching educational technology. And then I decided to go for my doctorate degree. And I really loved the idea of 
being innovative and pursuing a field that hadn't existed. Um, and so I decided to get my doctorate in education, but with a focus on instructional design for online learning. And that's also what I ended up working on my doctorate with and, and doing some additional work. But it was um, a situation where it was about being open to new experiences and new pathways. And then I had an opportunity to make a shift from a four-year private liberal arts college to a very large community college. And there I had the first opportunity to work for a female president of color. And so we started talking about the presidency and she encouraged me to consider um, preparing myself for that. And I remember saying to her, I don't know if I have the pedigree to be able to step into the presidency because I had come from the corporate world and I hadn't had that many years at that point in higher education. And I hadn't had some of the traditional roles in higher, higher education that used to be the stepping stones for a presidency. And she said to me, when you are ready, the presidency will be ready for you. And I never forgot that. And so I just worked to continue to build and cultivate new experiences. And then eventually I found a fit with Holyoke Community College. Thank you for walking us through that. Um, you know, I, I can only imagine that your corporate experiences shaped you in such a way that you became ready. Um, one of the themes, your story uh, is, is similar to what I've heard from several other presidents that I've interviewed who've come out of more non-traditional kinds of backgrounds. And uh, they have talked about how valuable that non-traditional experience uh, wound up being, um, especially given the, the amount of um, fluidity that we're now seeing in higher ed and the need to pivot on a dime and to pull from all kinds of different places than just the traditional um, the traditional places where, you know, historic, uh, higher ed has historically relied. So I'm thinking that must be uh, true for you as well. It very much is true for me. And I remember at that time when I entered in higher education, I was seen as this non-traditional employee that had come from corporate. Again, it was unusual at the time. Most people had been in and started their careers in higher, higher education. And I came in as a director and I, I didn't have those, um, I didn't have the cultural experiences of higher education. And yet I found that to be my asset, my strength. And what's interesting when you fast forward from then until now, I actually feel like this concept of those of us who identify as non-traditional presidents or people in non-traditional roles, that actually that feels the norm. And I, I see a similar pattern when we talk about non-traditional students and how really they are the norm, but we refer to them, you know, in context to the traditional aid student, which is no longer the norm. Question, I wanted to ask you about your unique leadership style. So how do you do that? Uh, how, how do you lead um, somebody who uh, works for you? How would they describe your leadership style and also your approach to innovation? Well, as far as my leadership style, I've been asked that question a lot over the decades. And for me, 
I don't have one leadership style. Um, and I think it's part of that adaptability that has allowed me to continue to grow in leadership roles and also to operate and lead in different types of organizational settings. I have worked in four-year private education. I've worked in community college education. I've worked in union and non-union environments, two-year and four-year. So there's, there's a lot of mix there. And I do think that you have to be very flexible these days. So I would really describe my leadership style as, as adaptive. And I would say that one of my super strengths is in relation to asking questions, being a good questioner. And that has really been a key aspect. I think if you ask um, my team, perhaps people at my college, I, I tend to ask a lot of questions in, in a meeting. And I, and I try to do it without judgment, but more from a seek to understand perspective. However, a lot of times by asking questions and be willing to go deeper than just the superficial and sort of obvious questions that people anticipate, really break open a different sort of conversation. And that's also why I love looking at data, because I think if you're willing to look at data from a lot of different lens and, and sort of manipulate it and to be able to see it from different perspectives, you can really see new things suddenly right in front of you. When you've been looking at that data for several months and then you start to change your questions and suddenly you see different things right in front of you. And I really love that about our work. You have the experience. You've completed most of the coursework in a doctoral program, but you have not completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation, status behind with Baypath University. Our innovative Doctorate of Education in Educational Leadership ABD degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way from your dedicated faculty advisor to your small dissertation seminar group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu slash edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. I'm curious if if you have an example or a story of when your questioning led to uh, breaking open a new perspective, a new way of, of looking at things. Well, I think that it comes up a lot, um, but to give you a example, I think one of the pieces when, when I first arrived, I was 
asking a lot of questions about who we are and who we want to be and really kind of illuminating the, um, the, the audience that we serve. So we were really digging into demographics and, and it was through that, 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 that light bulb moment in the conversation with others where they started to really recognize that who we focused on serving had changed a lot and it was continuing to change when we started to look at the data. And then by looking at the data and suddenly asking these questions, we realized not just the majority, but now over 60% of our students are part-time. So think of that data point alone and what that means for entire systems and structures that have been built around the full-time student. That one, one line item completely changes not only the, que the further questions that you ask, but it changes the strategies and it changes um, the future plans. And so, um, so I love when we have those light bulb moments and, and those light bulb moments often don't come directly from me. That's not my role. My, my role is to create the conditions for those things to emerge because I believe that we have many great ideas that exist in our faculty and staff and our students who are helping to co-create this student experience together. Now, as you well know, community colleges are going through a very challenging time right now, which is true for all of higher education, right? So I don't want to just single out community colleges, but community colleges are where you happen to be focused at the moment. So what do you consider to be the most pressing issues or challenges at hand uh, for the community college sector? And why, why do these matter uh, and for whom? Well, there's certainly no shortage of challenges right now. And I would say that in the context of a post-pandemic era, but also just the trajectory of higher education needing to change as well. I think the pandemic though is an interesting pivot point and, and marker in time because for the first time we were in a situation that we had something well beyond any of us, and particularly our leadership roles and our authority in those leadership roles, but we were collectively forced to do something that we didn't want to do. And in our case, for, for my institution, we, we closed the college down, we pivoted completely online, and we didn't, we closed it down in March of 2020, and we didn't reopen the physical campus with few exceptions for some specialty programs until fall of 2021. And so that was a really long period of time. And it really, I think it did a lot of positive things for us. I attribute the pandemic to having more positive experiences than negative, even though I think about how difficult these times have been, both in the moment and pandemic decision-making and also the additional stressors on faculty, staff, and students in terms of 
um, focusing on employees in terms of their work and students in terms of continuing their education at a time when everybody as individuals were also going through this collective traumatic experience. So I do think that this is a pivotal point for us to look at. And when we think about the issues in relation to our future and near future, I certainly think at a community college funding issues are particularly prevalent. I would actually say all colleges funding is a, a top priority. And with community colleges being partially state supported. And um, so we have part of our funding that we have direct control over and part of our funding that we have sort of indirect control over through advocacy and sharing of data. And so that affordability is a really important piece. And I think it's, a, it's an important piece that speaks to the value system of our society. What do we value when it comes to having an educated citizenry? That to me is the greater question. And it doesn't matter what kind of education that you pursue. It is about what do we value as a society? And if education is one of those core tenants, then why is it that some people have greater access to education than others. And so what's the balance between rights and privileges, who has access, what kind of access that they have, and then the corresponding conversation about student debt, right? And, and how much um, personal liability do they have to take in that? Again, if it's, um, if it's a privilege or it's, it's a right. And so those are some really deep questions that I think our society is facing when you look at some of the uh, different data that shows in some pockets there's an increase of focus and value on education, higher education, and then there's other pockets where people feel like there is a shift away that there are other ways to get on the job training and, and not necessarily valuing the post-secondary experience. So I know that we could do a whole podcast just on, <laughs> on those topics. So I'd, I'd, I'd say that point. I would also say conversations that we've seen nationally about the uh, ability to, to teach um, freely the topics that we feel like are important, especially as it relates to critically responsive pedagogy and culturally responsive pedagogy. Those issues really come up a lot. Um, but for me, I do have to recognize and acknowledge that as a community college, one of the most pressing issues is also student basic needs. And we have shifted from this idea of just focusing on the quality of our education, which is still very important to us. Academic rigor is our first tenant. And we also need to focus on who is showing up to us in school today. And the world is very different and students are balancing multiple jobs. They may or may not have transportation. They may or may not have a reliable childcare. They may or may not have enough money to provide food for their family on a daily basis. Um, so there's all these other big challenges and one of the big shifts for community colleges and other post-secondary institutions is that we can't educate them effectively without also addressing these needs as well. Very, very true. So what does all of that mean? As you look to the future, uh, what, what do you see as the role then of community colleges in the higher ed system? 
in the future? Well, I, I certainly think that the future is partnership-based. I think um, none of the institutions can operate in silos. I think we do all have very strong um, uh, histories of collaboration and partnership. I think though the seamless transfer of students from a community college to a four-year school has to take a front seat because we lose people in some of those those transitions. And when you when you look at any transition point, whether it's high school to college or it's um, two year to a four year school, it's these transition points that get in the way of our life. It, I had 10 years go by between getting my bachelor's and my master's degree because life life happened. And so when you add in all of these other factors that that individuals are dealing with, then we really have to make this really seamless. I don't actually believe that students should even have to apply for transfer. I think we should have things so seamless that you know, having the idea of students requesting transcripts when it's data that anybody could through a, uh, a high functioning automated system could get. Um, these are things that I think from a process improvement to take out the tediousness um, of, of the barriers for higher education. Students are not here because they want to process paperwork or go into the line of the business office. They're here because they want to focus on the educational experience. And so we have to remove more of the barriers to the disruptors that get in the way and impede that progress. So Christina, you recently announced your decision to step down at the end of this year, which uh, I think probably took uh, some folks by surprise. No one likes to have a president leave when they're uh, in the midst of doing such good work. So uh, how did you know this was the right moment for you? I have a, multi, a multi-pronged question here. So why now? How did you know this was the right time? Um, and as you look back over your years as president there at Holyoke Community College, what, what are the things you're most proud of? What, what does your legacy, what do you want your legacy to be? Those are a lot of questions mixed in. So <laughs> let me, let me um, work to address some of them. So in terms of the timing, it's never easy to make a decision when you're having so much fun in your job. Um, I, I really feel that this is probably one of the most unique decisions that I've made in, in my life to be able to be um, working um, so strongly with the community and the college at large to be able to affect change with our students. And I feel so excited about the future of Holyoke Community College. And last year I turned 50 um, I had an opportunity to go to Bali for an entire month with my partner, now fiance, and it just gave me an opportunity to start thinking about how the impact of the pandemic has changed me as a person, and I felt like I had seen so much incredible loss in our communities, and for me, it started I started contemplating, what does it mean to have a next chapter um, as opposed to just continuing in my current chapter? And so after some deep contemplation around uh, that, that feeling, I decided that I wanted to give a year's notice and I really wanted to set the institution up for success. 
it was first and foremost important for me to feel like HCC was in a good place. I wasn't going to leave the college at a point where there was some struggles still with the pandemic um, in a significant way. We're always going to have challenges that you know, we're working through. And so that was first and foremost. And I felt like we're far enough away from the pandemic that I felt like we've uh, engaged in some recovery and that we've got a second iteration of our strategic plan and that we've got a solid direction. And it felt like a really good time for me to say, I want to think about my future as a person and the way that I express my gifts and talents right now is through this presidency and um, what would occur if I actually took some time off. And so it started me thinking, Melissa, what if everyone as part of our expectations as a society in the way that let's say in the past, people just retired at 65 for the most part, right? It was a norm. And so what if in the future, everyone took a sabbatical when they hit 50 years old, that whatever they were doing, they just took a year off um, for some exploration. And I really just started thinking about how I've never had any space in my life to be able to do that because I, my mother says I was born 40 and that I've, <laughs> I've, I've worked hard since then. And so this was really more, it was less about HCC and it was more about me feeling like I wanted some space for reinvention, expansion, flexibility, and to be able to hone my own creative skills. And so, um, so it was about retooling myself. Well, that takes courage, you know? I think it takes a special kind of courage to, um, to, to recognize that, to be willing to recognize that, okay, I'm, I'm going to uh, take a pause and consider uh, me and the, the next step in my life. So good for you. I congratu congratulations. Thank you. It's it's it hasn't been something that I've seen a lot of models of, but oh. I am accustomed to um, setting new trends and 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 trying new things. And so for me, I I really think that this is about me having an opportunity to retool myself and see what's next. You know, sometimes until you step out of something, which is why it was very important for me to not necessarily move right into an opportunity. Because again, right. this wasn't about leaving my institution. That's actually the hardest piece of the transition. But it was really about giving myself some space to just see what emerges, what happens when you create that space. And we don't, while there are a few examples I've seen of presidents taking sabbaticals um, in the context of their job and then returning, um, you know, for me, I, I thought it, it made sense to, um, to be able to announce my retirement, to not keep the college in a holding pattern and for the college to continue to move forward. So let me ask you the rest of that question now is as you look back over your time as president, mm -hmm. uh, what are the top things that you are most proud of in terms of achievements, innovations? Well, I am very proud of the work that we have done at HCC to be able to better serve our, our community and students. 
A couple of highlights from this time period include the renovation of our campus center, which to me is really the nerve center of the of the campus. And uh, it's so wonderful to see that being utilized. We opened it in February of 2020, a month before the pandemic. So when we reopened after the pandemic, it still had that quote unquote new car smell. Um, but that was a significant um, renovation for our campus. We also opened the HCC MGM Culinary Arts Institute in downtown Holyoke, which really speaks to the importance of our partnership with the city of Holyoke and also our commitment to academic innovations. We have five state-of-the-art kitchens in this space, and it's one of the most renowned spaces we have in all of New England. And so um, it's a wonderful space for our culinary arts and hospitality and food management programs. So that's another um, an initiative that I'm very proud of. We also have focused a lot on basic student needs, which is something that is near and dear to my heart and really, really addressing equity in a significant way. And to be able to address equity, we really, really had to start fundamentally changing the composition of services that we've had to be able to support our students. And so we have today, every student who needs a bus pass can get one for free. We have a food pantry for any students that are experiencing food insecurity, whether they need uh, hot to go meals or um, they need to get some groceries from our food pantry, um, but we don't want uh, them not being able to focus on cognition and thinking in the classroom because they're hungry. We also have launched our Itsy Bitsy Child Watch program at HCC. And this has been able to bring our student parent needs to the forefront by providing child watch services while students are attending a class or maybe accessing a tutoring session or another service on campus that we would watch their child during that time frame. So it's a little different from full-blown childcare, which we don't offer, but we do um, have the child watch service to support them while they're in classes. And so, and then we also have uh, partnerships to address some housing needs for students that are housing insecure or homeless. And so those have been some of um, the really important work we've done to really invest in equity. Also from a strategic layer of addressing equity, when we talk about the need to address systems and structures and supports, I have committed to hiring a vice president of equity so that we have strategic representation at the cabinet table directly focused on that. And then I would also say, I'm proud of the work that we are doing as it relates to our transfer program because we want students to start here, but we don't want them to finish here. We want them to go on for more education. We want them to view higher education as a lifelong endeavor. And so uh, we've been recognized by the Aspen Institute for our transfer practices. And also 
HCC is one of the most successful gateway to college programs in the nation. We've been nationally recognized for our success in this program, which takes students in high school to work on finishing either their GED or, or to finish their high school diploma and also obtain college credits in that process. So we get them re back and re-engaged in their secondary experience. And then we also work to pursue um, getting them in into higher education. So those are just a sampling. I have a whole laundry list of things that I'm just so <laughs> proud of the work, but um, it's all of this has happened because we have outstanding faculty, staff, and students uh, that are part of HCC. Yeah, that is indeed a long, long list. And I know it's only a short portion of all of the things that have transpired uh, during your time there. So you will, uh, you will certainly uh, be missed. So I have two questions. We're at the end of our time here. Um, you have talked about your leadership style. I'm wondering if you can maybe take it to a higher level and summarize based on your experience. You know, is there one or two things that you're going to take away as being especially critical from a leadership perspective, whether it relates to you or to to presidents anywhere, what what's most critical now in in these times? Yes, there are there are a few things that are that I'm taking away and, and things that I feel like I've learned and relearned and unlearned um, over over the course of my presidency. One is to be a visionary. The future is going to arrive whether we want it to or not. And so I think it's really important that um, we stick to having a vision. We know that the vision and the future don't always come easily. They come with some uh, points where you're working to try to disrupt the current status. And so that can um, you know, have pinch points at times, but being a visionary, being adaptable, so that you don't miss opportunities when, you know, if on one hand, we need the drive to be able to continue to push through things, but we need the flexibility to really be able to see detours that are very appropriate to a pathway. Um, to recognize that you can't do much without your people. Um, so really, really focusing on how you build those relationships and how you can cultivate support. Um, while there's times when you just have to make sort of a decision from the top, I'd say most decisions are made in cultivation with other people coming, coming to a decision point together. And then um, also to question everything. I often feel like it's our assumptions that interfere with innovation. And so I've had a lot of conversations at the college about what does it mean to unlearn our approach to higher education? And so that is unlearning aspects of who we are. For example, we often say community colleges are two-year environments, but most of our students are part-time now. Very few students finish in two years. We need to unlearn that as a culture so that we can right-size expectations. So this is what I mean about assumptions interfering. And then last, I'd say, don't take anything personally. Um, be personally invested in the work, but don't take it personally because um, everyone's going to have, if you truly diversify the rooms that you're operating in, 
different perspectives and all those perspectives have value and meaning. And so um, being able to just look at those perspectives and recognize that they're coming from different lived experiences than your own can be a very a powerful awareness when um, cultivating um, consensus. Great takeaways and terrific wisdom. So our last question is our signature question. We asked all of our guests uh, and I think I might know how you're going to respond, but we'll see. Maybe you'll surprise me. So what educational innovation or new idea has captured your attention these days? Is there something you're really excited about uh, as it relates to higher education? I'm really excited about the metaverse and the meta university. And the reason why I'm excited about this is because when I oversaw e-learning and innovation years ago, I was working with a technology at the time called Second Life. And this was like a very, you know, sort of rudimentary, very, um, very new type of innovation. And so having a chance to see the metaverse emerge to me feels like another generation of this technology. And I think that's often what happens in innovative spaces is that someone puts out a disruptive technology, you work through the pinch points, maybe it gains traction, maybe it doesn't. Then there's more um, change, the conditions change around the technology, and then it creates new life around the applications of it. So when you combine the metaverse with um, other aspects of artificial intelligence, you know, when you think about the technological applications of blockchain technology, all of this to me is very exciting about what it will do for online learning what we think of as online learning today will not be the experience that students have in the future. And so I think the hardest thing is get, getting over the label of it, just like today, getting over some of the old experience that people had when online learning was text-based um, chats and so forth that we have to reinvent. And so I think that is a wildly optimistic part of our future of higher education. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. So um, that's that's terrific. Well, Christina, thank you so, so very much for sharing your story, sharing your wisdom, your insights. And I wish you all the best as you embark on this next phase of your life's journey. Well, thank you so much, Melissa, for having me. It's been a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris-Olson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, C-H-E-L-I-P, where you will find information about our monthly free Leading Edge Thinking and Higher Education webinars, as well as our just-launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. 
that's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Thank you.